Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm delighted to welcome New York Times bestselling author Bernard Cornwell back to my podcast. Since this is his second interview, we will not revisit the usual questions about how he became an author and the like. As a result, this conversation will be shorter than my usual 50 minutes. You can find a link to that first discussion in the post accompanying the interview. And be aware that the address has changed since we originally uploaded it. Since we last spoke in June 2014, Bernard has published three more of his Uhtred novels, as well as a non-fiction book, Waterloo, which appeared in the United States just before the 200th anniversary of the battle. The first two Saxon stories have also appeared as a hit television series on the BBC and Netflix, under the title The Last Kingdom, now also the title of the series. Additional episodes are due next year. So we have lots to discuss. But the focus of the interview is the latest Last Kingdom novel, The Flamebearer. The eye of the passage that follows is, of course, Uhtred of Bevenberg, the hero and narrator of the series. It began with three ships. Now there were four. The three ships had come to the Northumbrian coast when I was a child, and within days my elder brother was dead, and within weeks my father had followed him to the grave. My uncle had stolen my land, and I had become an exile. Now, so many years later, I was on the same beach watching four ships come to the coast. They came from the north, and anything that comes from the north is bad news. The north brings frost and ice, Norsemen and Scots. It brings enemies, and I had enemies enough already, because I had come to Northumbria to recapture Bevenberg. I had come to kill my cousin who had usurped my place. I had come to take my home back. Bevenberg lay to the south. I could not see the ramparts from where our horses stood, because the dunes were too high, but I could see smoke from the fortress's hearth being snatched westward by the wild wind. The smoke was being blown inland, melding with the low grey clouds that scudded towards Northumbria's dark hills. And now, please join me in welcoming Bernard Cornwell. Hi, Bernard. It's lovely to talk with you again. It's very nice to be back with you again. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've been busy since we last talked. Uh, three novels in the Last Kingdom series, The Empty Throne, Warriors of the Storm, and now The Flamebearer, plus 350 pages on the Battle of Waterloo, uh, as well as the television series. So let's begin at the end of the list, which is also in a new format, the beginning of Uchid's story. What was it like to find out that the BBC wanted to adapt your work for television? Um, well, it was wonderful, of course. I mean, it's, it's always a joy when people do that for you. Uh, I mean, I never actually believe it when I, when they tell me until I actually see the titles running on the screen. That's when I start to believe it. How much say did you have in production? Did they consult you at Absolutely all? Absolutely none. Not, nothing at all. And that was deliberate. They sort of <clears throat> very kindly said, did I want to be a technical advisor? And I said no. And part of that is because I worked in television for 11 years. I was in news and current affairs. And the one thing I do know about television is that I know nothing whatsoever about producing television drama. And so I thought, well, I can't be any use to you. And these were the people who made Downton Abbey. I mean, what they don't know about making television drama isn't worth knowing. So I just stayed well away. Yes, I mean, it always surprises me, actually, when novelists want to be involved in their production. Uh, I mean, my books aren't anywhere near that level, but my thought would be I haven't ever written a screenplay, so I wouldn't even want to do that. I want somebody to do it who knew what they were doing. 
Yeah, I mean, that was when people say, why don't you write the screenplays? Well, I'm, I've never written a screenplay either. And, and, you know, this is not the time to start on your own work. <laughs> and they had a wonderful, wonderful screenwriter, you know, who had a huge amount of experience. He's obviously going to do a much better job than I could. But, I mean, I understand why some novelists want to be involved. They, they want to sort of protect their property. And that's fine, too. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I, th I mean, I think that if you if you give it over to a team like that, like the people who made Jackson Abbey, they're going to add value to it. I mean, they're going to add their own imagination, their own ideas. And I think that's wonderful. So I like not being involved, except perhaps as a cheerleader. And then when the series comes out, it's as much a surprise to me as it is to anybody else. Yeah, they really did a one t uh, fantastic job. You have an excellent cast. Um, Alexander Draymond, for example, plays Uhtred. And when I first saw him, I, he wasn't my mental image of Uhtred. But he's, I really warmed up to him watching this series. I mean, he's really very good. And the guy who plays King Arthur is Al uh, Alfred. Excuse me, not Arthur. King Alfred. It's is, David Draymond. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's, he's terrific, isn't he? Yeah, he's a, no, it's a wonderful cast. It really is a wonderful cast. And... Um, but again, you know, the, the people often ask me, you know, do you, don't you want to cast somebody different? And I, I've never cast a drama. What do I know about casting? You know, that's why they have specialist casting agents. And so again, just stay away from it. Let them do it because they know what they're doing. Um, do, when you're writing, do you imagine characters as movie stars or, or not? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I... I <laughs> I certainly don't think in terms of movies when I'm writing. Uh, I mean, of course, I see the characters in my head. And, and, and equally, obviously, those characters are not the ones that you see on the television screen. But again, they add their own value. They add their own creativity. And, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, I, they, they, when the Sharp TV series came out, they had Pete Postlethwaite, that wonderful actor, playing a character called Obadiah Hakeswell, who was my favorite villain. And... He's not certainly not the person I would have cast as Obadiah Hakesville. But in the end, his Obadiah was better than mine. And, I mean, that's a terrific gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's a real advantage of screen, I think. I mean, it's wonderful to, to write a story and really bring it alive on the page. But watching actors bring it alive is, is a completely different experience. And it's, it's quite fascinating to me how they do it. Yeah, and it's a different product. I mean, again, I you know I get the old person who complains and says, "Well, you know, that, that your you know your sharp is not the same as Sean Bean." I say, "So what? You're getting two for the price of one." Um, you know, actually, I think Sean Bean was a perfect sharp. He was wonderful. Um, so I, again, it's just it's just I think a question of appreciating what they bring to it and 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 really appreciating it and being grateful for it. I mean, it's never going to look exactly the way you want it to, you know, that you imagine it in your own head. Uh, but as I say, sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's the same. Sometimes you think, well, maybe that could have been done a different way. But I think they did a great job. What can't be tra transferred to television, do you think? Well, I mean, they're constrained by budget, aren't they, poor darlings? I mean, it's, 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 I mean it costs me nothing to bring on 20,000 men. <laughs> it costs them a lot of money to do that. Um... So I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the answer to that question is, other than, than the budgetary constraints, and, and presumably they will pick out certain themes which which they like. And, and I mean, they have to check. They have to change things. And they, I mean, the first series was two books. Well, those two books add up to I don't know, probably quarter of a million words, and they've only got eight hours to do that. Uh, so they leave things out, and and 
they allied things, but, but I think they did a, did a great job. I think they did a wonderful job. Uh, I mean, we recently watched the BBC's War and Peace in, was it six or eight episodes? Oh, wasn't that fantastic? But it was was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And and of course, you know, this is one of the biggest novels of all time. But 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 I think Andrew Davis, who did the script, did an amazing job by, by bringing it down into shape. He did a wonderful job. Yeah, he really did. I mean, that I was meaning to ask you about that one, actually, because, uh, you know, I'm a Russian historian. And I put off reading War and Peace for years. I mean, decades. I was embarrassed at the point because, uh, you know, I thought it was going to be such a, a slog. But it's it's a real page turner in the original, despite it's 1300 pages or whatever it is. And yet they managed to take all of the really good bits and um, yeah, they they put it on yeah, the screen. And, and I mean, it was fantastic. And James Norton and Lily James were wonderful together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was terrific. And Paul Dano was great. Prince Andre was. Um, but again, I mean, Tolstoy couldn't have written that because he's not a screenwriter. Andrew Davis is just so good at this sort of thing. So, what's planned for your second season? Do you know? Uh, it starts, all I know is that it starts in, I mean, being transmitted, I think in April, there isn't a date yet, that depends on the BBC, um, but the second series is coming, all I know is it's coming in the spring, but I think it probably will be here in April. And is it combining the next two books? It's going to, as far as I know, it's the next two books, yes. I really do stay away from it. Um, uh, I don't ask to visit the set, I don't ask them for news, um, I get on terribly well with them, but that's probably because they never see me. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to your next project, which was Waterloo. Um, and I know I read somewhere that you uh, I had always wanted to write about Waterloo, but was it the bicentennial that caused you to take a break from Richard at this particular moment? Well, it wasn't much taking a break from Richard. I'd, I'd always wanted, that's the only nonfiction book I'd ever wanted to write. Uh, because it is such a fantastic story. I mean, you, if you were the historical novelist, you couldn't make it up. I mean, the, the, the shape of the plot is perfect. So if you, if you, it all happens inside four days. There's an immense amount of activity and excitement going on in those four days. And right up to the very, very end of the last chapter, I mean, except we know how it ended, but, but it, but the battle really does hang in the balance. By eight o'clock on, on that night, of June the 18th, 1815, either side could have won. And then when it, it does end, it, it ends decisively. I mean, lots of, lots of battles might end in a victory, but, that, but the victory isn't decisive. And by that, I mean that, that I mean, we were just talking about, about war and peace, and Borodino is, I suppose, just about a French victory, but it's not decisive. It doesn't win the war. Waterloo does. Waterloo ends over 25 years of fighting. So it's an extraordinary story. And I'd always wanted to write it, and it seemed the obvious time to do it was for the Bicentenary, which was last year. I really loved this book. I mean, it's a beautiful book to start out with. It's got all these gorgeous color pictures, and it's got maps, and, and it's beautifully laid out, and the type is great and everything. But it's also, I have to say, it's beautifully written. I mean, it was really... <laughs> no, really, I mean, it, it had all of the... It was history, clearly, obviously history, but... It had all of the strengths of novel writing, I think. I mean, the characters are very vivid on the page, and, and there's lots well, of quotations. And, and Well, I was deliberately using novelistic, I'm sure, like fiction techniques, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, that was that that was deliberate. I mean, I, I mean, for instance, there, there's a chapter. Oh, I can't remember which one it is, and it, it you know, and all because this is all true. This has all happened. I mean, you know that the, the British Dutch army is under intense pressure, um, and they're threatened on their right by by, by French cavalry, and. Um, then at the last line of that chapter was something like, you know, and then the cavalry charged. Now, at that point, the reader wants to know what happens, and they start the next chapter, and they finally eventually move to a different part of the battlefield. You have to wait four or five pages for the, for the next part of that story, which was only it was the British cavalry. Um, I mean, you know, it's deliberately using novelistic suspense to tell the story. So is that cheating? Anyway, that's what they did. No, I mean, historians tell stories too, right? <laughs> Some of them tell very boring stories and some of them tell wonderful stories. So I think this one, I think that's entirely fair. Um, still, you must have done a great deal of research for this. I mean, just reading all those diaries and letters must have Well, I was, I was rather astonished by how much there was. Um, I mean, I thought I knew the battle incredibly well. I'd, I'd written it in the novel. And I mean, I, you know, I've been, known, been reading about that battle for 40, 50 years. But when push came to shove, I mean, I, I found that I knew less than half of what I needed to know. And in the end, I put a huge table into my workroom. And I, th- I counted it when I finished the book. There were 148 open books, you know, with post-it notes all through them. So, yes, there was, there was a huge amount of research. So was it fun? I mean, do you enjoy doing the research? Uh, I enjoy writing. I enjoy doing the writing. Um... I mean, the, the joy of writing a novel is to find out what happens. Uh, and of course, you know, I already knew what happened in Waterloo. <laughs> so I suppose, I know, I'm not sure I really enjoy the research. It's just it's something you have to do. I mean, someday, you know, it has wonderful moments. I mean, there's wonderful moments of illumination and you discover things you didn't know. But, but it's, 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 not the same as, it's not the same joy as writing a novel. So the connection, of course, between Waterloo and Uchid's novels is the experience of war, and especially the experience of war from a person who is fighting it. Um, now, there's a, a huge time difference. Um, Uchid is operating in the late 9th and early 10th centuries, and this is you know, early 19th century. What are the overlaps in the experience, um, and what are the differences I think the overlap, I think, is that one of the things that fascinates me about, about war and battle is that, that all the moral restrictions of life are lifted. Um, you know, I mean, we learn very early on, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal. Uh, and yet when it comes to war, we're encouraged to do both of those things. Um, so it is how do people actually react to this, this loosening of the moral ties? Um, and that I don't think changes very much. Um, and it is how people react to the horror of war, which is, which I think is interesting. Uh, how has it changed? Well, I mean, there's obviously lots of technical answers to that. But, but other than that, I think I suspect the experience of battle is the same now as it always has been, um, which is, uh, you know, a mixture of, of extreme excitement and absolute terror. Um, so that leads us nicely into Uchid, uh, since we're focusing mainly on the flame bearer today. Uh, when we last talked, you had published The Pagan Lord a few months before, 
And we don't want to spoil the plot for people who haven't read the interim books, but a quick <laughs> overview might be useful. Um, two points that struck me are that The Empty Throne and Warriors of the Storm are the books where Ethelflaed and Uhtred's um, two children, I mean, Ethelflaed herself and Uhtred's two children, uh, really come into their own. Um, but how would you summarize the basic arc of those three books? I don't know if I could. I mean, it, it's, you know, I go back to I think what I told you the last time we spoke, which is, you know, the, most historical novels, actually 95% of them have a big story and a little story. Um, the big story is, is, you know, will the South or the North win the Civil War? And the little story is, can Scarlet save Tara? And you flip the two, you put the little story in the foreground. And... I mean, the big story of the of the Uhtred books is is the story of the making of England because um, I can't see why that this should, should be put any particular interest in the United States. But the English are incredibly ignorant of where their country comes from. Um, they have absolutely no idea. Uh, I mean, if you'd been born in the year 899, which was the year that King, King Alfred died, there was no such thing as England. And yet 50 years later, there was. And, and the story is, how did that happen? Um, and I suppose, you know, the, the, the Uhtred's children and Ethel Flade, they're characters in the, in the drama. And you, it's almost like a rep company. You wheel them on when they're needed. And if they're not needed, they stay in the wings. Um, but, but really, my concern is to write that big story. Although, in many ways, the flame bearer is... It, I know it is sort of relevant, but it is much more Utrecht story than the story of England. It really is. Uh, but where is Utrecht now at the beginning of the flame bearer? I mean, we know that physically he's uh, sitting in front of Edinburgh on a horse, but where is he psychologically? Oh, Lord knows. <laughs> <laughs> I meant in terms I of his overlap. No, I have absolutely no idea. You sound like my editor who keeps on saying, well, what is he feeling? I said, he's not feeling anything. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't mean but, that. I meant in terms of his life journey. I mean, we know he's going to live to be a very old man. But... Well, I think his life journey is, is like, like the life journey of most of us, probably in the end. It, it's, it's in, I don't want to say in vain or disappointing. Um, I mean, he's going to see the making of England. He's going to be horribly old, and I don't know if he's still going to be able to tell the story, but I'll probably keep him alive until, until that moment. Um, but in many ways, because Utrecht probably doesn't really care very much about the making of England. His, his, his concern is much more uh, his religious belief, which is he's a pagan. And uh, part of the point of the making of England is this is a Christian endeavor. Uh, it wasn't just a war between the Saxons and the Danes. It was a war between the Christians and the pagans. And that's terribly important. But, but Uhtred's on the wrong side of that one. So psychologically, I don't know. I haven't a clue. I'll find out when I write him more. <laughs> well, in a sense, culturally, he's on the wrong side of it, too. I mean, he serves the Saxons. Um, and by this point in time, he seems to be pretty committed to that cause. But he's still... I think culturally prefers the Danes, right? Yes, I think he is. I mean, I think that's one of the one of the things that makes him interesting. I mean, is that he has got a conflict. I mean, it's like you go back to the Sharp books. I mean, Sharp is a, a plainly a very good soldier and a very very good officer, but he's up from the ranks. He started as a private, and 
in many ways, he's resented by the officers who are gentlemen. And, and so that's his conflict, is can he fit in? Does he even want to fit in? Um, with Uhtred, I think it makes it much more interesting that, that, I mean, he has a huge admiration for Alfred, King Alfred. But Alfred is, a, is an extremely pious Christian. And in many ways, he's a Puritan before the time, if you like. Uh, and I like the tension between them. I think it just makes it more interesting. So I think in the end that, that Uhtred will... will just ignore that. I mean, he, he'll be happy as a clam as long as he's got you know his place to live and he's safe there. Um, I mean, you know, he, 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 can, he can see the train coming down the track and there's not much he can do to avoid it. One of the things that is really interesting for me about re-watching um, oh, about, I, I watched all of The Last Kingdom and then I went back and watched uh, several episodes again over the last few days while I was getting ready for this interview. And I had read the book uh, before our last interview, but what was really interesting to watch it on television while I was reading The Flame Bearer is the contrast between the young Uhtred and the older Uhtred. Um, he, you know, he's never the kind of guy who actually does stand around and worry about what he's feeling. He's, he's very much a doer. Um, and yet he is notably more mature in the these later books that we're talking about now than he was in the beginning. In the beginning, he was, I mean, this yeah. is, you know, I mean, he was arrogant and he, I mean, everybody makes mistakes, right? But he, he made certain kinds of mistakes that were different from the ones that he would make now as an older man. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, we all grow up, don't we? I hope we do. And, uh, Yes, he does change. And it's also, I mean, the other fascinating thing about the Anglo-Saxon period is that it, it really is a warrior culture. But it has to be a warrior culture. I mean, making of England is, is a tale of a hundred years of warfare. And it actually seems rather extraordinary to, at least to me who grew up in England, that places that I think of as entirely peaceful, that where nothing has ever much happened, in fact, saw these vicious battles back in the 9th and 10th centuries. And one of the things that King Alfred knows, even though Alfred's priorities are his religion and spreading learning, education, he knows he needs these people. He needs these warriors. Um, and, and warriors are different to, to, to other people. I mean, they, they, it's an alpha male society. I think one of the things about Uhtred is, is, is secretly he's actually rather a nice guy. Um, he's not unkind. Uh, but he's also a terrifically effective warrior. And that, I don't think that worries him very much. I mean, it, it was... He, I, think, I think he is a decent guy. He does behave He does behave well. But put him on a battlefield and whoop, he's not quite the nice guy any longer. No, I agree with you, actually. I mean, he comes across very much as a nice guy, a uh, decent guy. But yes, I mean, when he's got a, a sword in his hand, he doesn't hesitate. It's, it's interesting for me because I write about warriors without having any real knowledge about how they operate. So I tend to stay out of the battles, but to get a sense of the mindset, I think is um, you really do get that sense from Uhtred. Yes. And if you, if you read, I mean, if we, if we read Anglo-Saxon poetry, it's very, I mean, much of it is very, very warlike um, celebrating the slaughter. And I mean, reveling in the slaughter, and and this I think is it, it was necessary to them to do that. By which I mean they knew that the only way they would survive is if, in fact, they celebrated the 
men like Uhtred who were doing the fighting, uh, and thus protecting them. And in many ways, what, what those warriors were doing is they are protecting a culture, a language, a way of life. Uh, whenever Uhtred thinks about what he's fighting for, he thinks in terms of, of land, women, children, uh, because those are the things that a warrior has to protect. And that's not being, being a sort of male-centric. I, I mean, Ethel Slade, in fact, did lead armies into battle, though there's no evidence whatsoever that she actually sort of drew a sword and fought herself. But it was overwhelmingly a masculine activity. I would think, I mean, even now, I would think if you're going to be a career warrior, there must be some element of that still. I mean, how could you go out and... and kill if you don't have... Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm mm. sure there is. I mean, it, for, for a lot of young men, it, it, it's what they want. Um, and, and, and I always remember what Robert E. Lee said. He said, it is, it is good that war is so awful, otherwise we'd love it too much. And, and there is no doubt. I mean, when I was writing Waterloo, I mean, reading through the memoirs and the, the, the letters, um, there, there were guys who... who after way after the wars, would look back on it and they'd say, "Yes, it was awful. Yes, it was it was terrible. Yes, it was frightening. But it was still the best years of my life." And in fact, um, I was struck by that because I mean, there were many people who were happy when Napoleon escaped from Elba because it meant they were going back into war. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes, they absolutely loved it. I mean, on, on every side. I mean, the French, the Prussians, the British. They were all celebrating like crazy. Um, but then that's not unusual, is it? I mean, if, if you think of the themes, it wasn't true, I don't think, in the Second World War, but it's certainly true of the First World War. This was themes of great excitement at the beginning of the war and, and people volunteering in, in droves and quite unaware that they were going into probably the most horrible war in history and, and with the worst slaughters. So, yes, I mean, there is this ambivalence always about, about war and battle. And... I mean, again, the, the, the warriors of the Anglo-Saxon period are very celebrated by their society. They, they are heroes. Um, and yet the horror of it is, is just quite awful. And there was a story not long ago about a, a battle during the war, I mean, in the medieval times in England, called the Battle of Towton. And archaeologists managed to find some of the grave pits, and they brought a forensic specialist over from America, and she examined these bodies that had been in the ground for, I don't know, probably 500 years, and she determined that some of these men, and more than just a few, had been so terrified at the moment of their death that they shattered their own teeth as they gritted their teeth, and I find that just quite appalling. And yet probably some of those men who are men-at-arms and in their armor with their swords and lances, you know, were looking forward to the fight, looking forward to being a warrior. And yet their ending was, was of such horror. So there's always that ambivalence going on. And, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a battle in 10th century England against the Vikings or whether it's Waterloo or indeed whether it's, it's Afghanistan today. Yes, uh, this is also in, I mean, in that period, even in the period of Waterloo, to some extent, it's also a very personal one-on-one -on -one contact. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah, that's what's so, so utterly horrifying. I mean, it's, 
in the Viking times, there wasn't that much death by, by missile. Uh, I mean, they did throw spears, and, and but they didn't have the longbow, so arrows were really not that effective. Uh, the vast majority of men died in hand-to-hand combat. And, and, and it's then not really surprising. I mean, one of the very earliest poems about, about battle in, the, in that period says we were drunk. Um, and that it's really not surprising that men actually drank as much as they could, or a lot of them did. Um, and the Battle of Agincourt, which I wrote a novel about, I mean, the, the, although the, the sort of popular picture is the, the English archers won that battle, the evidence really is that they didn't, that, that, that they did a huge amount of damage and they were very, very influential. But in the end, the battle came down to hand-to-hand fighting. You're literally two to three feet away from your enemy. Um, I just wonder whether one of the reasons the English won that battle is that they were so low on supplies, they didn't have enough wine to get drunk, whereas the French had plenty. But I, I'm not really suggesting that seriously, but it might be a factor. I think a lot of men did fight inebriated. Yeah, they probably did. Um, and in Uta's time, it's even, well, I mean, it, you can't get more personal than hand-to-hand combat, but, you know, there's this, this there are lots of just depictions in those novels of the shield wall and the, the absolute, I mean, people literally going under the shield with a long knife and right into the guts. Yeah, and, and guys, you know, using lead-weighted mauls and hammers and axes to beat you down. And, and, and I mean, one of the things you have to try and imagine is that some of these guys really loved it. I mean, think, you know, they're the size of linebackers. And, and they're coming at you with huge enthusiasm. And not everybody's like that. You know, you, I mean, I'm sure for most of the guys just were terrified. But on each side, there were a certain sort of there were men who just absolutely reveled in it and loved it. I think you had to hope you were not up against one of those. Um, and it is a frightening thought. I mean, to have a guy the size of a linebacker coming at you with a leg-weighted axe. Um, you know, it's, hello, I'd rather be anywhere else but here, isn't it? Right, yes, exactly. And Uhtred, I mean, he often describes the battle joy, which seems to be almost like what other people might call a berserker rage, where he gets into this, this state uh, where he's... I mean, Uhtred, I'm afraid, does rather machine. enjoy it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's awfully good at it. Um, he has to be. And, um, but it is... I mean, it is, it's, uh, the shield wall is a very frightening idea. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, so Uhtred's story is not over, uh, as you tell us at the end. Um, England is not yet unified, although... The situation in the last kingdom has been somewhat reversed, so that the, the last kingdom now is the, the Northumbrian holdout rather than horribly besieged Wessex. Um, and I know you said that you don't know how many more novels there will be in the series, but are you working on a new Uhtred adventure now? Actually, I'm not. I'm taking a year off from it, um, only because it's actually quite good to take a rest for occasionally. You can come back refreshed. But I, I mean, in my head, I think there are four more. But I don't, honestly don't know. I really don't know how many there are. So roughly, I know roughly what's going to happen in, in the next couple of books. And there's, there's some really splendid skullduggery that went on in, in, in England at that time. So I'm sure Uta will be up to his neck in that. Um, but, but he's on the back burner at the moment. Do you ever get tired of him as a character? No, 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 no. I never get tired of him. I mean, it's, it's, I enjoy him. He makes me laugh. 
I mean, I, I always think you know, that the, the, the wonderful thing about reading a book is uh, a novel is because you, you read it to find out what happens. And that, for me, is why I write it. I never know what's going to happen. And, and you write a novel to find out what happens. And that's actually quite exciting. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've got a vague idea of what the next couple of Uxford books are, but once I actually start writing them, he, he may go off and do something totally different. He seems like that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he will, but he might. Uh, I mean, Sharp totally surprised me. I mean, Sharp in the end marries this, this French woman and ends up living in France after having spent his whole life fighting the French. I didn't expect him to do that, um, but he did. So before I let you go, I should at least ask you a little bit about the flame bearer. Um, you mentioned the, the overall big story, um, but the big story in uh, the flame bearer is actually mostly your invention, right? It's it's yes, it is. Yeah, it's it is. Like it's a lull and, mm-hmm. and we can't uh, we can't talk about what it is because <laughs> that's no, no. a spoiler. Right? Yeah. No. But it's, well, it's it's you see. I'd long wanted to write a series about the making of England, but I mean, that by itself is just sort of an enormous subject, and, and you, you want to see it through the lens of a character, and obviously the character is Uhtred. And he only came to me about, I remember, about 14, 15 years ago, when I met my real father for the first time, um, and I discovered that, that he was descended from this character called Uhtred. And what intrigued me about that was that, that the, the family had held on to their land, the castle of Ebenberg, right through the period of Viking occupation, even though they themselves were Christian and, and Anglo-Saxon. And I thought, wow, how did that happen? And that's the little story, if you like, is, is you know, it came directly from me discovering that I'm actually descended. Now... The Uhtred I'm descended from, we know almost nothing about. I mean, we've got, I think, a couple of signatures on charters, but we really do know nothing about him. So my Uhtred is completely fictional. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's where he came from. And, and that he's, he's the, the lens through which we watch the much bigger story. Yes, uh, he's a wonderful character. He really is. Um... I like him. <laughs> Um, he, can be, he can be he can be terrible at times. Yes, he can. I mean, I mean, you know, put him in the same room as a bishop, and he begins to behave extremely badly. Yes, he does. <laughs> he really doesn't get along with the church at all. Um, so, no, not really. While you're taking a break, are you working on something else? I am working on something else, but whether it will work, I have no idea. I see. So, well, I'll look forward to hearing more about it in due course. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Bernard. Oh, Carolyn, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Bernard Cornwell about The Flame Bearer and the series of which it is a part. You can find out more about him and his novels at www.bernardcornwell.net. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Historic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.